the reading, the reading that we're going to be uh, taking our, our passage from today is 1 Corinthians 10, chapters 14 to 22. Is it going to be on the screen? Cool. I'm going to read from the ESV, um, so you can compare and contrast with whatever's on the screen, starting at cha- uh, uh, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So with this passage, as Paula said, we're continuing our series on eating with the Lord. We've been exploring key meal scenes in the Bible and bringing these into our reflections as well, especially as we take communion together. And as we've moved into the New Testament, more and more of these meal scenes start to be explicitly connected with communion, with the Lord's Supper. And this passage, I think, is particularly interesting because it's the only passage in the whole Bible that uses the word communion when we're talking about this Lord's Supper, about this Eucharist. Uh, Most modern translations don't use that word. They'll opt for something more common in our everyday language, like sharing or participation. It didn't occur in the particular translations we looked at right there. Um, But... If we look at the King James here at the verse, verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And it's from this phrase that we get this name, the Holy Communion. But what does this mean? The word at its base is about sharing something in common with something or someone else. So when we take communion, what is it? that we're sharing in and who are we sharing it with that's what sort of where I'd like to end up today Um, but before we can answer that I do want to put these verses into context a bit and that means taking us through uh, a bit of a wild ride of sacrifices and idols and demons and uh, all that fun stuff so bear with me Um, we'll get back to this idea of communion um, and I think it'll be relevant but um, yeah this is where we're going to have to go first So these words come at the end of a long section in 1 Corinthians, uh, from starting at chapter 8, that's all about whether one should eat the meat that's been sacrificed in pagan sacrifices. And Paul's advice on this matter is famously confusing. If we just read 1 Corinthians 8, then I think we'd come away with a fairly clear idea of what he's saying. We know that there's only one God, and so an idol has no real power or significance in the world. Likewise, the food offered to that idol has no real power or significance, for good or for ill. Therefore, if we felt so inclined, we could safely eat such meat, 
without suffering any negative consequences. God's okay with it. That seems to have been the view of some of the Corinthians uh, to whom Paul is writing. And in principle, Paul seems to agree with this. There's nothing wrong with anyone's knowledge here. Paul does urge caution, however, with how the Corinthians use their knowledge. In verse 7 of chapter 8, um, if you have Bibles, yeah, sort of it's maybe useful to look, but don't worry, I'll, I'll try and read as much as I can. In verse 7 of chapter 8, he says, Not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Later in verse 10, If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. What seems to matter here is not, not any inherent danger uh, or any inherent sin involved with eating the sacrificial meat itself. And notice that Paul doesn't seem to envisage any negative consequences for the person with knowledge, as he calls it, uh, eating in the idol's temple. The problem is rather if these actions cause someone else to go against their conscience and fall back into their old idolatrous ways. This, Paul says, would be sinning against your Christian brother or sister and ultimately sinning against Christ. This is quite a nuanced and pastorally sensitive, dare I even say it, slightly postmodern uh, take to take, right? It doesn't matter about the meat itself, it's sort of how you view um, what it is you're doing. Um, I find it's actually harder to put into practice um, in different situations than it can sound. How do you identify who is actually weak in conscience or who actually needs to have their views accounted for here? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's something that I find is used often. I mean, this, this sort of advice that Paul gives is actually used often in sort of church circles in decision making. Um, I do find it a tricky one to put into, con to, into practice sometimes, but we do seem to have a coherent view here. It emphasises love of neighbour and concern for each other over knowing the right things and over having all the correct theology. And in a town like St Andrews, that's an important thing to, to hear sometimes, right? Um, and chapter 9, as we move on through here, seems to leave the issue of idol meat behind for a while and it moves to other topics, but it's actually really still concerned with this same ethical principle of giving up one's legitimate rights for the sake of others. That's what we see um, throughout chapter 9. So as I said, it's a hard lesson to learn. It's a tricky one to practice wisely. But we do seem to have a coherent principle here and a coherent answer to the concrete question that's posed at the beginning of chapter 8 of whether one should eat food that's been used in pagan sacrifices. When we get into chapter 10, though, and get to the passage that I just read out at the beginning, we start to wonder whether Paul actually agreed with the premises he started out with in 1 Corinthians 8 at all. Is idol meat as harmless as he made it out to be? In 1 Corinthians 8, an idol is nothing. There's no God but one. And food will do nothing to bring us any closer or farther away from that God. In 1 Corinthians 10 now, suddenly there are demons. Where do they come from? I mentioned earlier that... Um, this passage is the only one in the Bible to use the word communion in relation to the Lord's Supper. It's also the only passage in Paul's letters, apart from one reference in 1 Timothy, that talks about demons, at least using this word. 
And demons now seem to be a real threat. I don't want you to be partners or participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There seems to be an unholy communion going on here with these meals that directly mirrors and inverts the communion, the participation with Christ's body and blood that goes on at the Lord's Supper. That's how it often appears. I think that's how it's often read. Um, it's often read as if Paul is actually, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, he's agreeing with the premises of the people he's talking to for the sake of argument. But here is where you get Paul's real opinion, that actually this stuff is dangerous and there's demons involved. <coughs> there are a couple of points, though, in Paul's language that I think suggest maybe his general line of thought is not as inconsistent with chapter 8 as might at first appear. And I'll take a swig of water to leave you all in suspense at that point. So, <laughs> so first, there's a subtle shift in his language at the start of chapter 10, where we move from idle meat, idle food, to idle worship. And Paul's actually quite consistent in distinguishing these two things. In verse 14 that I started this, this passage with, he tells the Corinthians in no uncertain terms to flee from idol worship, from idolatry. Get nowhere near it. But he reiterates a few verses later again, am I implying that idol meat is anything or that an idol is anything? With the implied answer here, no, it's not. So idols and the meat offered to them, nothing. Worshipping them, worshipping them, on the other hand, is a big no-no. And that is what seems to carry grave consequences in this passage. And actually, this second point here about worship is a logical consequence of the first the reason worshipping idols and depending on them to meet our needs is so catastrophic, not because they're powerful beings that require fear and reverence from us, but because they're so powerless. They can't give us the things we're looking for and the things that we need in life. Only God can provide those things, and everything else is a pale imitation. Now, for some people, it seems, in Paul's context... Eating the meat and worshipping the idols were inextricable. You couldn't really do one without doing the other. And it's these people that Paul wants the others to be mindful of. So they're not led back into idolatry. But consistently across chapters 8 and chapter 10 here, the meat is nothing, but the worship is everything. I think this is important as we start to think about ideas of communion. Because it, this distinction between idol meat and idol worship puts the emphasis on deliberately participating in acts of worship that, that are designed to honour other gods who are not the one true God. I don't think this is something you can accidentally fall into or even do privately. What Paul's worried about here is not certain meats in certain places, but it's the public and intentional coming together to give honour to false gods, things that aren't the one true creator of the universe. This is a problem precisely because they have no power. Secondly, I find this interesting, this powerlessness, this lack of power, is further underscored by the fact that Paul does list some drastic consequences for idolatry here, both from Israel's history at the beginning of chapter 10, in the wilderness, and also in his present day. 3,000 fell in a single day, he says. They were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example 
And they were written down for our instruction. So this is relevant for what Paul's talking about in his own day. But this is what I find interesting. These consequences are not meted out by the gods that the Israelites were worshipping. They're given by the one true God. Notice too in verses 20 and 22 of our passage, where the demons start to come in here, that Paul doesn't want the Corinthians, so Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to be partners or participants with demons. But this isn't because of anything the demons can do to them. It's so that we don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. Are we stronger than he, Paul says? Not are we stronger than demons. It's God that we're actually pitting ourselves against if we choose to worship and give ultimate honour to things that are not God. And we, I mean, we saw this this morning in the Jeremiah passage that Ethan read out and that Abby spoke on. It's about um, the people in that passage going after other gods and it's the Lord that is the one that has the problem with this. They're the one that they're going to have to reckon with because it's that sin and it's that um, disloyalty that God takes so seriously. This, incidentally, is also why I think Paul decides to use the word demon here, which he doesn't tend to do elsewhere in his letters. Partly it's because he's thinking of other scriptural passages in the Old Testament that link pagan gods and pagan sacrifices with demons. So things like Deuteronomy 32, where it says they made him jealous with strange gods, with abhorrent things they provoked him. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to deities that they had never known. Also in Psalm 95, 5, all the gods of the nations are demons, it says. Blanket statement there. But the Lord made the heavens. But the point of these passages, and I think in Paul too, is not then that demons are uniquely supernatural forces of evil that inhabit people who get too near to pagan sacrifices. His point is precisely that they're insignificant. They're weak and powerless semi-demi-hemigods and not the one true God who made the universe. This is why he decides to use this word. It's even a diminutive form of this word. They're these little mini-gods. So again, in that case, the accent in this passage is not on demonic partnerships, demonic communions that destroy the Christian. But the accent is on who we're choosing to honour when we come together for our communal meals. This is what God cares about. And this is where we come back to the idea of communion. So I said at the beginning that this basic idea of communion is about sharing or participation. It's about having something in common some, something in common with something or someone else. And Paul is saying that when people in his context partake in idolatrous pagan sacrifices, they are participating in a community that's organised around the shared worship of something that's not God. They're not necessarily sharing anything with the demon so much as they're sharing that demon with everyone else. They're creating partnerships with other people on the basis of shared meals and shared worship, but a shared worship that's oriented to the wrong object. Paul says, I mean, less with the wrong object, but Paul says the same about Israelite sacrifices. Those who participate in such sacrifices, he says, are partners of the altar. People have tried for a very long time to work out how someone might be a partner or a participant in an altar. Um, and I, I don't think any of the suggestions are that convincing. 
Um, it actually makes much more sense if you're not participating in the altar itself, but the altar is the thing you have in common with all the other people that you're with. You've brought together a community on the basis of that shared altar. And so finally, since we're then coming at this in the opposite direction to Paul, when we gather together tonight to eat the bread and drink from the cup, I actually don't think this passage is primarily about union or participation with Christ in that sense. This is a theme, of course, that is there elsewhere in the Bible. It's an important theme, so I'm not denying it or belittling it. But the communion that Paul talks about in this passage is about the fellowship and the community that's created when we come together on the basis of our shared worship of God as he has been revealed, though, in Jesus. We who are many, Paul says, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's the body that's being created here that he cares about and that is affected by our sharing in Christ's body. So this passage would have us think carefully about what sort of communities we're creating in our shared meals and in our shared worship. Are they communities that publicly and intentionally focus around honouring the one true God over above any pale and powerless imitations that might present themselves? <clears throat> and further, we can push this even a bit further, are they communities that reflect the character of the God as revealed in the giving of his body and blood? So verse 17, which I just read out, says that we are one body because we all share in the one bread. Next time I think we do this series uh, in a month's time, it's 1 Corinthians 11, so I'll skip out that chapter. I don't want to rain on anyone's parade. But if we skip a couple of chapters later in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks more about this body that's been created. It's formed of all those who have been baptised and drunk of the same spirit, as he puts it. And here he calls it the body of Christ. So Christ is very much present in and with this body. We are eating with the Lord here. But this body, Paul also goes on to say, is marked by its care and concern for those parts that are normally considered weak and inferior. Those members of the body that we think less honourable, we clothe with greater honour. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honour to the inferior members, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. This is a body, a cosmic body, of a world, a universe that's ordered correctly, where the, the, body, the members of the body, whether they're thought of as less honourable, less important, or stronger and more important, these are all brought into alignment under, in, one, in one position under the one God. There are no demons intruding here. There are no idols. This is the world as it should be ordered correctly. And this concern, this concern for the lesser and less honourable members, matches pretty well with Paul's advice back in chapter 8 about caring for the consciences of the weaker members of the community. And that's because it's a perspective that's formed from the nature and character of the God that we come together to honour. The true God and creator of the universe who gave his body and blood for our sakes. And so that's what we're remembering, honouring and celebrating tonight. So let's pray.
Lord, thank you that there is no one like you. You created everything and everything finds its resolution again in you. We find our purpose, we find our fulfilment in orienting our lives towards you and worshipping you as the only true God. Thank you that you have met us in the person of your son. Thank you that Jesus' body and blood that we will take together tonight forms us into a body, brings us together as one body united in worship of you. And we pray that you will strengthen us as a community to reflect you in our corporate worship and in our corporate being. May we show, be a visible sign to the rest of St. Andrews and to the rest of the world what you are like. In your name we pray. Amen.